I'll be starting the 21st verse of Galatians 4, where Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we invest ourselves in your scripture, in your word to us, Lord, even in some unfamiliar verses and some unfamiliar ideas, Lord, I pray that as we lean your way, you would come our way. Lord, remind us as we set out this morning that your word does not return void. That you alone have the words of eternal life. And Father, as we, we take this message of your scriptures and point towards Uh, communion with you, Lord, remind us that the word is constantly pointing towards the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to see that this morning. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I've done something I've never done before, uh, which is I brought my phone up with me. And I'm doing this because I want you to imagine that while I was, while I'm preaching to you, a phone call would come in, well, as I'm preaching, and the phone call would, on it would be someone that I know and care about in, in the midst of a medical emergency, asking my advice, and at the same time, I'd have bad reception. That's what I want you to imagine, which with my phone is easy to imagine, because I always have bad reception. So that's, that, I want you to kind of imagine that because I feel a little bit as though the challenge today in the scripture is a little bit similar. I imagine as you were reading or hearing the passage, uh, some part of you might, uh, at least I think, what a convenient week for Pastor Dwayne to be on vacation. Uh, like this passage is not a freebie. 
uh, in the sense, because it's a little bit unfamiliar to us. So, uh, you know, the, here would be the problems if a phone call came in for me like this, is first of all, the biggest problem would be me. I know nothing about medicine at all. I'm, I'm eked out by it. I am of no help to anyone in a medical crisis at any time. My, my, my prescription is rubbed dirt in it. Uh, so that would be problem number one. Problem number two would be, how do you help somebody in a medical crisis over the phone? I mean, that's really hard. It's, uh, it's hard for me to see you. I'm not there. Problem three is the bad reception. So the, the bad counsel someone would be getting because they had me on the phone would be further frustrated by the fact that we had bad transmit. And then uh, on top of all that, I'm trying to preach a sermon. That's the difficulty. Well, this morning in Scripture, it's a similar difficulty. Paul's going to start his picture for us with ancient history and a very old uh, picture from Jewish Scripture that many of us might not even be that familiar with. He's using something that for the devout Jew in the fellowship would be, they would be at home in this. But to people who did not grow up that way, it's a little bit unfamiliar. And he's, then he's going to add another difficulty to that. It's just as soon as he gets the story going, he's going to say, stop. Actually, I'm using this as an allegory. So then he's going to take it and turn it into an allegory, only to then teach a lesson, a practical lesson for an issue that doesn't really seem to be our issue today. And then we're going to have to take that idea and say, what does it mean for us in 2022? So we're going to go from an ancient story to an ancient allegory to an ancient problem. And then we're going to upgrade it to 2022. That's what we have to do in about 25 more minutes. So that's uh, our, tr our, our problem. And the reason he's doing this is sort of the tell is in the 21st verse. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? So as, as you've been walking along in Galatians, you know that this, what, what this is, is it's a community of believers in the region of Galatians. You have these churches, these new fledgling churches with some Jews and many non-Jews that have all come to Christ together. And what's happened is, is people have come from Jerusalem. I call them the Jerusalemites, right? They're Christians. They confess Jesus Christ, but they're still tethered in their hearts and minds to the Jewish law. And they're coming into this, this, these new communities of believers who have discovered Christ and they're saying something like, well, Jesus Christ is good and all, but if you really want to be close to God, you got to take on the teachings of Moses, the law, okay? To which I'm sure by now you've heard Paul, like this letter, he trash talks in this letter. He's aggressive in this letter. Uh, and... And so he's pushing back on this force to say, this isn't simply bad, it destroys the gospel if you're not careful about it. And right here in the 21st verse, he's essentially gonna say, for those of you who think you're into the law, let's go ahead and play your game for a little bit. He says, you want law? I'll give you law. And that's what he's gonna do. He's gonna go straight to the deepest parts of the law of Moses to the front, to ground zero of the identity of the Hebrew people, he's going to go right there and say, you want to talk law? We'll talk law. And we'll see how this works out for you. So that's what's happening this morning. And uh, let's read verses 22 and 23 together and then work it out a little bit. He's going to start with the, the history of it all. He's going to say, you want, if you want to deal with the law, 
Let's deal with the implications of the law. And then he says this. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So if, you don't, if you're not that familiar with Genesis, here's the way the story works out. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. It's really for us the beginning of the narrative through which Christ comes is the, gen- the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord calls him. He says, hey, if you come my way, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless those who bless you. I'm gonna build a nation through you. All the world is gonna be blessed through you. Just come my way, Abraham. So Abraham comes God's way and the chief sort of way that God's gonna make this grand promise that's gonna take place over hundreds and thousands of years real for Abraham is, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a son. Which mattered because Abraham was old, so was his wife, and his wife was barren. So the way, Abram, what I'm doing in your life is gonna extend beyond you in size, magnitude, and time. But so that you know that I'm a promise keeper, I'm gonna give you, I, I'm gonna give you the impossible. I'm gonna give you a son through Sarah. That's what he says. And Abraham takes the Lord up on it and follows him for a while. And then after about a decade of waiting, Sarah suggests to Abraham, why don't you just take my slave servant, Hagar, and have a child through her, and we'll call that our son. And that's what Abraham does. He takes Hagar, lays with Hagar, and she gives gives birth to Ishmael. Well, the Lord comes to Abraham, and that was the reading that uh, Eric gave for us today. The Lord comes to Abraham and says, that's not really what I was planning. It's not at all what I was planning. I was planning on giving you a son through Sarah. And at some point, even Abraham's like, well, we don't really even need to do this, Lord. I have a son. But the Lord is intent to say, that son is not a child of promise. You went and got that one. You did that. I want to give you a son. And so... 14 years later, at 90 years old, Sarah conceives Isaac and gives birth to a son. His name is Isaac. He's the promised child. He's a miracle son. Now, at some point after that, you read this in Genesis 21, at some point as those two boys are growing up, you have Ishmael and then 14 years later you have Isaac. At some point we learn that the scriptures say it in a strange way. Something to the effect of Ishmael mock is found mocking Isaac. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. If you go back in, in Jewish history, in Jewish tradition, there's all sorts of dark imaginations as to what exactly was happening there. Needless to say, what's going to happen is Sarah's going to say to Abraham, you have to get them out of here. In fact, that's the passage that Paul quotes in the 30th verse here. He's quoting Sarah, not the Lord. Cast them out. And that's, in fact, what's going to happen. Now, I want to offer one note. Uh, Here is, Paul is not really caring about the fullness of the story. He assumes everybody hearing or reading understands the story. Again, you want law? I'll give you law. So he's assuming that people understand, but just for your sake, I will say that 
uh, the Lord comes behind Hagar and Ishmael, and while they get sent away, the Lord cares for them and blesses them. So God makes Ishmael into a great nation. You know how many sons Ishmael has? Twelve. It's, he is cared for by the Lord. So while you have humans behaving in very human ways, nonetheless, the Lord is overwatching this story. But that has no place in today's sermon. So that is the story. It's not what Paul wants to do with it. Paul wants us to think about a son born to a slave by our own hands and a son born to a free woman through the promise. He wants to use these ideas, okay? And, and that's where we're gonna go. This is, I would call this a super Jewish, super law-abiding narrative. Like, Paul's saying, like, we're gonna work this out together. And I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use, those people who are pushing the law on you, I'm gonna use their weapon against them. That's what he's doing here. Okay, then he's gonna take, so what I just read to you, 22 and 23, it's just history. That's all Paul's doing is retelling, in a brief way, history. But then he does something in verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So allegory. I have been sitting this week going, when do we use allegory today? Like, how do I say allegory in this room and it mean anything? And the best that I could think of, and it's not good, well, I'm gonna lose, anybody who's my age and older, I'm probably gonna lose you, okay? But maybe I'll catch people who are under me. Memes, you guys familiar with memes? Yeah, things people send on their phone, uh, memes are allegory. In fact, I find memes to, my, my boys, my kids, are always memeing me. And I get about 85% of them, and then on occasion I have to reply back, like question mark, dot, 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 because I just can't get it. But what a meme is, I'm gonna show you some, so we're gonna practice, okay? What a meme is, is it's gonna offer an image, and the image, by the way, there's, there's probably 150 or 1,000 images that get reused by people all the time and they just change the caption. So you're gonna see in a second images, okay? Don't think that someone brainstormed this image. They probably, this image you're gonna see is often used, it's just the captions that change, okay? But what you're gonna see, let me, let's just do it. I've talked enough about it. Let me get out of the way, you got, can you do this? Okay. So when you know someone is lying to you but you can't say anything because of the way you found out, okay? That's, if, you're, if you've never seen a meme, this is a meme, okay? And people in their 20s, like, they use these things, right? So the image below is used multiple occasions for multiple things. It's the type up top. Let's do another one here. When you're shopping and don't need to use that, Right, and it's a Buzz Lightyear, right? Years of academy training wasted, okay? Hey, now these are, I'm not hearing you laugh like I laugh at these, but uh, I'll do one more and then we'll move on here. So up top you have the social distancing. Calm down, Pythagoras, calm down. Now, that one is funny, all right? But now if you're, if you're out here going, I don't get it. I don't get it. 
what I want to say to you is this is actually, I think this is actually sophisticated allegory. Okay? There is something actually quite brilliant about good meaning. And it, what is happening here, and you can pull them down now because otherwise no one will pay attention to me, right? But what's happening here in, a, in an allegory is someone is taking an existing story or image or character, okay, and once they bring it into your mind, then now they no longer have to be loyal to the story. They're saying, I'm taking this image and I'm now wielding this image to tell you something I want to say. That's what an allegory is. So in a, this is exactly what Paul's going to do. He's told you just enough history to get characters in your mind, and then he says, now I'm going to deal with it allegorically. So he doesn't owe the story anything else. You don't, you don't have a right now to go, well, wait, what verse did that say it in? He is now wielding the story of Ishmael and Isaac to make a bigger statement. He's changing, taking ancient pictures and using, changing the words up top. That's what he's doing. And he's going to tell us something about the problem in the church right now using this ancient history as a picture. So in case like there's ideas of slave and free, which maybe in our culture is we almost have to release some of that. Or what about the story? You got to release some of that. He's not playing by our rules right now. He's saying, I have something to say and I want to use these pictures. And that's, that's how he's going to talk. So let's go ahead and read verse 24 through 26 and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick up. But again, he's not being sensitive to the emotions of the characters in the story. It no longer matters to him. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Okay, notice he's going to start building two columns of thinking. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. He means a law there. Okay, bearing children of slavery, she's Hagar. So you have this covenant of Moses, Mount Sinai, Hagar, Ishmael, slavery. Okay, he says, now Hagar, verse 25, is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present city Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, so you have this long column you have Mount Sinai, which equates to the law and the covenant of Moses that people are trying to push into this new church. He says that's Hagar, Ishmael, that's slavery, and it corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, is not all that free. That's what he's saying is, that's what you want? That's the freedom that you want? Go look at life in, in Jerusalem. The Romans are in charge, Okay. So he's going to say this, and he's going to come along in a moment and say, but you have a different mother. Your mother is Sarah, you're free. And notice what he says here in 20, 26. But the Jerusalem above, the one in heaven, is free. And she is our mother. And then he's going to go, to, go on to quote Isaiah in a second. So he has these two columns. You have this law, Hagar, Ishmael, slavery, existing Jerusalem. Then over here you have this this covenant, which is of Christ, it's what we're going to break bread over this, uh, this morning, right? This new covenant, which belongs to the free woman in her, and the, those who belong to her are free, and they're affiliated with the heavenly Jerusalem. He says it's an allegory. Our mother's free, he's saying. <laughs> This is, a, this is a, a important, if you catch this, 
man, you could feel it. The what he's doing, if someone was in hearing this letter read in their church with very Jewish ears, if they were the people pushing the law, he is calling them out and offending them. Because he's saying, you people who spend all your time boasting of the fact that Abraham was your father and Abraham was your father, he says, yeah, you're Ishmael, not Isaac. Can you imagine that? To the Jewish sentiment who says, we come from Abraham, we're the children of Abraham, we're the promised ones, we're this. And then the pushing on the people of the church, you really should get circumcised, you really should be abiding. He says, the moment you do that, you're no longer Abraham's son Isaac, you're Ishmael. You're, you're spouting a covenant which gives nothing but slavery. Like, those hearing, they'd say, are you telling me, like, the things that the law tells me to do with my hands produce nothing, it does not produce freedom? He would say, that's correct. The obedience to the law, no freedom. Living by the law, no freedom. All of these things that they're doing, he says, there's no way you can be free because your mother was a slave. That's what he's saying. He's saying in the allegory, you are, you are caught by what you belong to. Likewise, he's saying, and if people in the fellowship would, who have would it ears to hear the law, he's saying, and all these people who've stumbled into Jesus Christ and have come to the Lord through Christ alone, they're actually sons of Abraham through Isaac. You who thought you were the promised ones are finding out you're a slave. You who thought you had nothing to do with Abraham are finding out you're actually the child of promise. He's going to build on this in a second. He's going to, he's going to recite as if today wasn't hard enough. Or we deal with an ancient story and then he slaps a prophet on top of it. So here's, he's going to quote Isaiah. <clears throat> For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the child of the desolate one will be more than the, those of the one who has a husband. Isaiah is, is, is speaking of a moment in time. He's, his prophecy is landing at a moment in time, a very pivotal particular moment in time in Jewish history where all of their time in the law and all of the work of the law of Moses has failed them and they've the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. They're in exile and they're in despair. And notice what he says here. He grabs that passage with the same allegory and he says, listen, those of you who feel almost to the people in Jerusalem or in exile who know their city is burned going, where's God? Where's our hope? What? He says, you need to understand, you feel barren right now. What God intends to do with you in the next covenant is so much more fruitful than anything happened to you in the past. He says, you think you're barren? He's kind of grabbing that and connecting it to Sarah. You think you're barren. God wants to do so much in you. He's got a new covenant coming and it's gonna blow your mind how much he's gonna do with you. And he says, in, as a, even way more than when you look back at when you were to the one who was married. The one who was married, he's, he's talking about Jerusalem. He says, that bore them nothing. The history of Israel did not bear the freedom that the people longed for. That's what he's saying. 
And to those people who want to, he's saying, you want to talk law? Let's talk law. What good has it done anybody? I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm saying when we're talking about freedom, what freedom did it win? It didn't. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He says, we don't need that. We don't need that. So there's the history. We made it through the history. We made it through the allegory. So let's look at the practice. The practice here is in verses 29 through 31. Paul says this, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. He's, he's conjuring up the memory of Ishmael mocking Isaac. That's what he's doing. But what does the scripture say? And he quotes Sarah, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He says, you're the, you're the promised child. And he says, just like in the story where the, the older child of Hagar mocked and threatened the youngest child, he says, it's happening again. It's in our own walls. He says, that's what these people are doing to you. And it's actually quite remarkable how nicely it fits. You can imagine, you can imagine the ordinary child Ishmael, right? The child born through human ability. The child born because people, we took control. The child born within the limits of what we're able to do. That child, he was 14 years old when Isaac comes along. Can you imagine thinking you might actually be the promised one and then later on discover this other child is born and he's getting the promise? Would you feel resentment? I think you would. Would you feel jealousy? I think you would. He's, it's matching the Jewish sentiment as the Gentiles are coming into the church. It's exactly what he's matching is here you have this Jewish community who's been waiting for the Messiah to come. Then the Messiah comes and next thing you know, the church is full of Gentiles. Can you imagine the resentment they might feel? And they don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to follow the law. They don't have to do what we did. They don't have to wait. They don't have to endure what we did. They just come in at the very last moment. We've been around for a thousand years suffering through the prophets and the exile and the judgment. We've done all of this. We had all of this. And then these Johnny come lately, show up, and they're the children. They get to be in the promise. You can imagine the resentment. Let me just read you a passage. This is out of the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 13. This is Paul's first missionary journey. He's in the city of Pisidian Antioch, and he's preaching. And his custom was to go to his a city, go to synagogue, be invited to speak by his Jewish brothers in synagogue, and start his missionary work there. And so that's what he's done here. He's done this in Pisidian Antioch now for several weeks. Okay, they invite him to speak. They invite him to come back and speak. And I'm going to pick up in the next verse. I just want you to hear this passage here. On the next Sabbath, and you can just listen. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, isn't that awesome? 
He goes to a city, a foreign city. He starts in the synagogue. By the next, by several Sabbaths, eventually, almost the entire city turns out to hear what he has to say. Can you imagine, if you were a missionary, can you imagine any other better reality? It's perfect, right? Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict him that was spoken by Paul reviling him. And he ends up getting run out of town. The moment everybody showed up, the moment they felt like they lost. It happens again in Thessalonica in the 17th chapter. Paul goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica. He's preaching. Several Sabbaths go by. Everything's great. And then it says this, listen, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men and rabble and they end up causing a riot. It caused a riot to get Paul picked out. It's, so Pisidian Antioch, I should let you know, is a church in Galatia. It's one of the churches receiving this letter. That's what's happening. Just like the story, to which Paul says, these people have to go. This cannot stand, this teaching cannot be in the church. You have to get rid of it. That's how he ends there. Well, that's great history, allegory, practice, practice for the first century. What does this have, what does this deal with anything today? Because, you know, we're not dealing with circumcision. We're not dealing with Jewish law. Uh, you might say this isn't really our issue and at some level I would agree with you and at another level I'd say not so quick. Not so quick because there's almost, there's, I'll say there's always, there's always a battle between the ordinary, and the ordinary and natural, what you're able to do and what the Lord wants to do through his spirit by his promise. There is always a battle in us of the religion that we can conjure up through our own hands, the way we can describe ourselves by our own measures and what God wants to do through freedom in your life. That force, it's not Jewish, it's human. It, is, it will be here until the Lord returns. And in that sense, it, what the problem in Galatia is the prob this problem exists for us is essentially which son do you want to be? Which child do you want to be? Everybody claims, everybody claims they're a son of Abraham in this church. He says, that's not the point. Which son are you? That's the point. There's always an active temptation, a real and active temptation to settle with ordinary, ordinary religious practices because for you and for me, they're understandable, they're achievable, they're repeatable. I call them proudable. I can do them and be proud of them, right? That always exists in the community of faith is rather than like remaining, my, remaining open to what the Lord really wants to do for me is what if I just do a little bit more than what the next guy did and then I'm fine? What's, what's correct? What, what makes me among whatever people I am, I'm part of what makes me to be a citizen of good standing. Okay, I'll do that. What do I have to do? 
I'll do that. How often do I have to come? I got that. What, what do I have to give? I, there's some sense in every one of us that if we could just know what was expected, we'd do it. Just tell me the rules of membership and I'll do it. And Paul is saying, that is not how the kingdom of God works. The Lord wants to do much more in your freedom than you can do with your own two hands. The Lord does not talk that way. But we hear that way because this is how we often live. In your jobs, you have standards and marks and metrics and, and, right? and when we work and in all other places, we have this, what, what puts me in? What puts others out? What establishes good standing? What establishes poor standing? That's how we think all the time. What I'm telling you is simply believing that Jesus died and rose again for your sins does not purge this from your spirit. It, all the people coming into the church telling to be circumcised believe Jesus died and rose again. It's, it's how you choose to view your citizenship that deals with this. This is an active and real temptation, especially, not especially, but in addition to uh, how it ends up, how you work your faith out in a way that affects the next person to come along. So I don't know if there's ever been something in your life that you had the good fortune with the Lord of coming about freely, where no one told you to do it. You just came about it, man, in God's peace. He convicted your heart and you came, you came into obedience and free air and then you turn right around and say, this is what you're supposed to do. So the free gift that you received, you perverted into a law. You, Isaac, made an Ishmael is what you did. The Spirit wants to give it to that person freely too. I've seen this, I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this around me of sort of, once I'm in the club, the next person to want to be a member has to do one more thing. I'll give you a story. It's a funny story. And it's, uh, I think it paints the picture well. In 2003, I was deployed. This was during the invasion of Iraq. So a lot of people got religion. Uh, when we were deployed, Easter time came around. And it was Good Friday. And I... Uh, most of the guys that I worked, served with were, in, were Catholic. So I said, hey, let's go to the, good, the Catholic Good Friday service. I thought, if they'll go, it's a win. So anyway, we go to this Good Friday service. We're in, in Kuwait, and it's packed. Everybody needed religion because it was war, right? So there were like 100 people in this little chapel. It was packed out for Good Friday. And I'm assuming most of you did not grow up Catholic, but they have this Good Friday tradition where they kiss the cross. So at the conclusion of the mass, and by the way, the priest is just happy people are there, so there's very few rules. So I'm not saying anything bad about the priest or the service, it was just fine, great. But at the very end of the service, it was time to kiss the cross. And the way you did it is they said, you can now line up to kiss the cross, which was a little strange for me, but I was like, all right, I'll... I'm in for this. And so there was this line that started of about, you know, well, the line was about 20 people long, but the room was about 100. You're just waiting to get in line. And the priest was the first one in line. And he walks, over to, he walks down the aisle to the cross and he genuflects. That's when they do like a, an iron mic. He does that. He makes the sign and he kisses the cross and he goes on, okay? Well, the next guy behind him steps up to kiss, uh, kiss the cross 
And before he could genuflect, he trips. So it looks like he genuflects twice. He does this, and then he does this, and then he kisses the cross. Well, then everybody in there is bad Catholics or bad Christians. They just, in the middle of war, they got religion overnight. So the next guy doesn't know. So what do you think he does? He goes, the priest did one, the next guy did two. So he goes three times. He genuflects, and the next guy does four times. And there's literally like 100 people in this room, and I, everyone is doing the same math. Like, if I'm at the back of this line, I don't even know if I can make it. Like, it is gonna be a workout in order to get to the cross. I mean, and finally, about the sixth one was a decent Catholic who understood, and he just looked at everybody like we were crazy, walked up, did his thing, kissed, and everyone was like, yes, yes! But I gotta tell you, that's what's happening in this church. In this church in Galatia, one person's genuflecting and then saying, and then the next person's doing two, and the next person's doing three, and pretty soon, in order for anyone to get to cross, the cross of Christ, it's a workout. It's distancing. That's what Paul's saying is, is you, through, through you discovering things freely and then prescribing them unfreely to other people, this is what holiness looks like. You know what you're doing? You're making them do a workout just to get to Jesus. They can't just walk up like you walked up. You stumble and it's hard for them. And he's saying that cannot exist in the church of Jesus Christ. It can't. It must, the church has to commit itself to a Messiah who can be approached freely and through a church that can listen to the Spirit. Which means, and I'll just say this, a community of believers that is serious about this tends to be very freedom conscious. And I, th I think you're in one of these communities where where the, the pastor or the shepherd is going to tend to stop shy of telling you exactly what you're supposed to do. He's gonna, uh, a church that's serious about the freedom in Christ is gonna be aggressive about preaching the principles of the scripture and leaving you to walk away. You may find yourself sometimes going, I wish he would just tell me what I'm supposed to do. The moment that becomes habitual, you know what happens? He's added another genuflect to you. It's just that much harder. And then, and then you're gonna follow his pattern and you're gonna add another one to the next person. So a church that is serious, a community that's serious about freedom in Jesus Christ is gonna, as often as it can, as often as it can, stop just shy of prescription so that you can figure it out. So that you can go to the Lord and say, hey, so how much do you give? How do you dress? What does your Sabbath look like? Freedom. Freedom. And I'm telling you, I can promise you this, from the side of the shepherd, it's not easy, and it, there's a felt downside to it, right? It's hard because it requires patience and trust, because you can commend someone with the godly principles of the tithe or the Sabbath or modesty, you can just... You can go right to the limit and, and watch as it takes someone three years to catch any of it. Why? Because they're committed to the Holy Spirit. And I say to the glory of the Father for that, of the time and the freedom to come up with that. But it's hard. 
And there's a downside of it. And the downside of it is we, we as people are accustomed and sometimes we like to simply be told what to do. And so the downside is that when someone continues to offer freedom, people take that for granted. Like, you're being given freedom to follow the Spirit, and sometimes people interpret that as, I'm free to do whatever I want, because no one ever tells me what to do, which is, which is next Sunday, by the way. We're given freedom. I'll offer this last thought before we go to the Lord in uh, communion. This has been an observation I've, I've made in my life uh, again and again, which is this. Those who are truly free in Jesus Christ tend to be the most sacrificial in his church. Not the least sacrificial. I mean, those who really get it, they really appreciate what God did and who they are in Jesus Christ, those who catch on to that tend to be the more sacrificial in his body. And those who tend to say, now what, what exactly are the minimums tend to strive for the minimums. Those who are just drawn to the metrics of what does it mean to be, what are, what are the standards, what am I supposed, those who are constantly trying to figure out ex- exactly what is that, that tends, I just say is a historic observation is that attitude breeds a minimalist in Christ. When we're free in the Lord, he uses us up. And for those who are being used up, it's a joy because they're being used. To those who are bound by a law, they're bound forever by a limit. And it gets in the way. It gets in the way of fullness. I'll just say this. This, this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, uh, it's not by our hands and our feet that we're saved. It's by his hands and his hands. And his. It's not by our body. It's not what we did. It's his body and what he did. It's not the blood pulsing through my veins. It's the blood through his veins that's the new covenant. You see even how the Lord's table calls you out of yourself? You need my body, he says. You need my blood, he says. Like, you want to be free? You need to leave yourself behind. It's not what you can do. I think that's applicable at any age.